I wonder what you think about this. What do toilet doors and skyscrapers have in common? It turns out a lot, but I want you to think about it. What do toilet doors and skyscrapers have in common? They both show the mark of man. They both have the mark of people who want to go down in history. From the tallest buildings we can build to the lowest form of poetry that is penned on a public toilet wall, people want to go down in history. They want to leave their mark. They want to find fame. Make a name for themselves. We built this skyscraper. Be in awe. Or, Russ was here, written on the toilet door. I just want to clarify that, I, to my knowledge, you won't find my name, Russ, Russell Larry Grinter, born 1977. Not that Russell written on a toilet door, but maybe someone does it for me, I don't know. But you've noticed, haven't you? And it's got to make you think every time you, if you're on a trip somewhere and you use the service station and the public toilet, like, who bothers to take a texter to the toilet? It makes me think, who, who's, like, who's thinking, you know what, pack the, pack the kids, pack the staff, pack the car, esky... Yeah, well, in those days, now pack the money for McDonald's, whatever it is. I need a marker, a texter. So when you go to the toilet next, the public toilet, that is, or perhaps you see something amazing that humans have built, that they pin their name to, here's the question I would like you to think about. How will I go down in history? Today, from the episode of the Tower of Babel, uh, we're looking at an often missed topic of conversation in our society, but I suggest even in the church. And that topic is a very important topic. It's actually very dear to us, but we don't speak about it in these terms, and that is the topic of glory. Fame. Now, if you know the line, you may know the song. So just to help us out, if you just haven't, but I know it'll get stuck in your head now for the rest of the sermon, that might be helpful. Fame, I want to live forever. You know, that phrase, that song, I think in many ways is a theme for our society. So even in my little part of the world, amongst my family and friends, I think and I can see that we, in our own way, in our own particular niche, whatever that might be, we had this deep desire to go down in history, to not be forgotten. This has been the human desire since the beginning. When Cam read from Genesis 10, you may notice there's a lot of names there, there's a lot of generations, there's a lot of people. Uh, the book of Genesis, the book of generations, so one of the markers of the text that's used is, uh, they didn't have chap chapter numbers and verse numbers when this was penned, uh, what they did have was that phrase, these are the generations of. And we saw these generations of people, and, and chapter 10 and the second part of chapter 11 is full of this generation list. Why? Because the author, well, the person who penned this, Moses, is making a point 
people have always wanted to go down in history. The context around the Tower of Babel is those, is those endings, that the first bit in chapter 10 and the second half of chapter 11 is this context for the middle bit. And we see in Genesis 9 verse 19 that really chapter 10 is an expansion of this. Genesis 9 19, we read this. These are the three sons of Noah who came off the boat. These were from all peoples of the earth were dispersed. These sons. The dispersion of the whole earth come from Shem, Ham and Japhet. And these clans and nations come from them. We see in verse 5 and 20 and 31. But there's something else we saw in Genesis 10, and you may have noticed it, and you may have thought, that's strange. See, in Genesis 10, we read about things that are yet to happen in Genesis 11. For example, look at Genesis 10, verse 25. To Eber, and Eber is a, an original form, it's probably where the Hebrew people come from. To Eber were born two sons. The name was one was Peleg. And the other one was Jokton. And for in the days of these two sons, the earth was divided. Here's a reference to the dividing of society. Here's a reference to the Tower of Babel, which has not yet happened. We also see in Genesis 10, and people will point out to you, that in Genesis 10, we read several times that peoples of the earth spoke different languages. And so we see in Genesis 10, verse 20, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So what is going on? We've got Genesis 10, where it speaks about these different languages and dispersing across the earth, but yet Genesis 11, they're in one place of the earth and they build a big tower. What's, what's this? This is an important context. And this is how Genesis works. Do you remember back in Genesis 1 and 2 how that worked? Genesis 1, God creates everything over a series of six days. And in Genesis 2, we see him zoom in on humanity. Now, some scholars will contend, ah, see, there's no chronological kind of reading here. It's all mixed up and out of place, therefore it can't be, this is how it happened. But simply what we're seeing is what you would see in a movie. In a movie, Genesis 1 is the big picture. This is how the whole thing happened. And Genesis 2 is zooming in on the pinnacle of creation, who is humanity. Same again here. Genesis 10. This is the big picture of the world. All the nations come from these three sons. What's the point of that? It's saying, we're all cousins. We're all cousins. I know you've heard this story before, but my great-great-grandfather came from Somerset in England to Australia. Land of opportunity. Land of meeting new people. Making new friends. What's he do? He marries his first cousin, Elizabeth Grinter. She didn't have to change her name at the wedding, which was handy. But some people think, well, our cousins, that's weird, but we're all related, actually, in the end. We're all from these three sons, the whole world. And we all have the same problems in common as well. We're not just cousins, we're also sinners. And Genesis 10 shows us not just how we're related and context of Genesis 11, but the context of Genesis 11 particularly speaks of why we grasp for glory. I want you to notice, we pick it up in Genesis 10, where we actually read about this, we read about Nimrod. So we read about Nimrod and we read about him and and how he is the one that actually ends up building Babel and Nineveh. So come with me, have a look there. Genesis 10 verses 8 to 12. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, 
like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Syria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Do you notice this? See, in the story of us and the God who saves, the story of us is a story of humanity building things. And that's good. We're meant to. But where it becomes a problem is we build things for our glory. And look at Nimrod. You see those verses we just read there? Nimrod, we see, is a mighty hunter before the law, but the language that's used is negative language. In other words, he's a mighty hunter in the face of the Lord. In your face, God, I am mighty. I will do things that will defy you. And what does he do? He builds cities like Babel or Babylon and Nineveh. Cities have become the epitome of defiance against God throughout human history. So much so that in the book of Revelation, they're picked up and used. Babylon is used as the epitome of a society against God. And Nimrod a mighty hunter before the Lord, seeks to defy the Lord and make his life his way. And that's what we see happening now in chapter 11. Come with me to Genesis 11 and look again, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Why is that note there? Why are they telling us the tech, the technology? Because as people migrate to the land of Shinar, what are they doing? And this is possibly modern-day Iraq. As they move there, they say to one another, Let us make bricks and make them really well this time. They've built cities before. We see that in Genesis. They've built cities before. They watched those cities be washed away by a flood. But now, instead of using stone uh, and other things, they want to make bricks and bake them really well. It's the high-tech revolution of the ancient Near East. And there's a big difference with this city, is this one is going to be bigger and better than any other city. Look at verse 4. And they said... Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Why does this city exist? It exists for their security, that they won't be scattered over the earth and it exists for their glory. Look at the tower that's made. It may be a temple, and you can see um, images and pictures. You can Google this of temples made in that era, that period, kind of like a pyramid with stairs. It may be one of those temples. It, it possibly is a, a tall, narrow tower. It's, it's, it's hard to know, but the point of the tower is known. They want to make a world centre, and they want to be the centre of it. And in all this, they seek fundamentally security and glory in themselves and not in the God who made them. They are going like Nimrod in the face of God. In your face, God, we are going to make ourselves feel safe. We are going to glory in ourselves. 
We don't need you. And it seems like life could go on like this. That nothing is impossible for humanity. We could reach for the stars. And who's going to stop that? Even perhaps grasp for the glory of God. Nothing's going to stop them, of course, except we see in verse 5. For good reasons, the Lord came down. I want you to look at the brevity of that statement. Look at Genesis 11, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had made. Notice that? Think about the context. This is a tower that they said would reach the heavens. It would be so high and so impressive, it would reach into heaven. And yet, what does God have to do? He's got to come down to see how small it is. He has to come down from heaven to look at this so-called tall tower that reaches the heavens. They've built it and it's amazing, but God comes down to see what all the fuss is about. Verse 6, God says, look, they're one people, they're one language. This is the beginning of what they will do. Nothing will be impossible for them. Is God scared of their capability as builders of great things? No. What God is doing is making it clear from the beginning that this spiral of sin, if it continues, what they'll end up doing is finding their security, their safety and glory in anything but God. And such a spiral does no good to people. Do you think finding meaning in life outside of God who created life is going to be good for you in the end? Is that going to be for your good? To find your security in something else than God? To find your safety, to find your joy, your glory in something else than God? God says, that's not good for you. That's not what I created the world for. That's not what I created humanity for. And so verse 7, we read a very Trinitarian statement, by the way, which is a side point issue, but you can see the triune God has revealed himself throughout the Scriptures. Come, let us go down. And they're confused their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. And notice this, as God goes down in all his glory, he does gracious things. Where humans are historically arrogant towards God, God doesn't come down and wash them away with another flood. He's already promised he wouldn't do that. He comes down to graciously help them not hurt themselves. Friends, we too easily focus on what we build, what I do. I'm so busy making life about me. I'm too busy for God. I'm too busy for considering where is he in my calendar? Where is he in my week? Where is he in my life? And I build and build and build and be busy, busy, busy making life about me. We focus on things that we build and we use words for ourselves such as I'm amazing. 
We use words like incredible and capable. And we look at what we build, and there's good things to build, friends, but we look at what we build and totally forget the God who built galaxies in a day with a word. The God who right now, right now, can see the storm on Saturn. The God who right now can see the gentle breeze on a planet that we have not yet discovered. That God who knows the end of the universe because he put his boundary there, that God comes down to look at this tower. Here is humanity's sin moving into a spiral. It does no good to people. What does God do? He's so gracious that day at Babel, isn't he? Just like he promised no flood, his judgment is going to be gentle yet necessary. And ever since then, we have needed God to be gentle and necessary. We've needed his divine intervention to stop us bringing more damage to ourselves by grasping for glory for ourselves. How will you go down in history? Now, some of us might say, that's not my problem, Russ. Like, you're making this all about glory. I don't really seek for glory. I don't want to make a name for myself. I don't need a memorial. I don't write on toilet door walls. And, and, and I don't need to build towers. That's not my problem. But that's the point, isn't it? Our problem is that we're actually selfish and too easily self-focused that we neglect to see what the builders of Babel neglected to see. We care more about ourselves than God by default. That's our default settings, which means we need help. We need that divine work of grace to change things. No matter what it looks like, we do two things fundamentally that builders of Babel do. We look for security somewhere else and we glory in something else. When we could find our security, our safety in God and we could glorify Him. Glory, as we saw in the kids' talk, is a weight of importance. It's like a heavy king's robe and we want to wear it, we want to be important. That means when it comes to life, we easily get our kicks out of little bits of glory. We get that stimulation that comes through the mundane things. When it comes to death, we think that if we just build the right things in life, somehow God's impressed with us and we'll just make it into his heaven, although we built heaven here for ourselves, in our mansions and our things that we built. I've heard... People say, our current generation's problem is an obsession with beauty. That's, that's 21st century Australia. Well, maybe, but I actually think it's not beauty is the big thing. I think glory is the big thing. Because glory encapsulates and eclipses beauty. We don't all desire beauty. Some of us know, like, I, I know I'm never going to be a, a runway model, right? 
you get, you get to my situation, my, it's just not happening. I'm not going to be a Tom Cruise. I'm not, that's just, it's not going to happen. Some of us don't care for selfies that much. Some of us don't need to be influencers or even have moderately nice smiles. But that doesn't mean we don't care for the pursuit of glory. And we need God's word to gently, graciously teach and train, correct and rebuke. I need it. Because we seek for glory in all sorts of ways. It could be as simple as this. Do you personally notice or privately notice when a dear family member or dear friend seem to favour someone else more than you? Or it could be as simple and still as private and personal that with some reflection and perhaps some embarrassment, you know that your emotions can go up and down on the day or the week, depending how many likes you get on the socials. It could be that you've had a brush with fame and you just wish everyone knew that. I met Colin Buchanan. Wow. That means I'm in the circle. It could mean that you want a name for yourself on the sporting field and it doesn't have to be international sport, it could be the local sporting field. We can spend our lives chasing celebrity in all forms. Perhaps it is you want to be known as the smartest person in the room and you smuggle into every conversation as much as you can, especially in front of friends, that you want them to know how smart you are and so you just love to display that, the the new word you learnt this week on YouTube. Look out for where you might, in your heart, Seek for glory, for security. Perhaps it's being prosperous. As we see in the Bible, being prosperous is one of Satan's temptations. Because when we get more prosperous, what do we feel? More safe, more secure. We forget that can all be, well, taken away, rost, muff, moth loss. Where do you seek glory for yourself? Where do you seek glory for yourself that really belongs to God? And here's the great irony of humans in their pursuit of glory. We already had it. Because we are reflections, image bearers of God We've seen this in the Genesis series. The way in which God was going to see the earth filled with his glory was for us to multiply and fill the earth with his image-bearing, glorifying people. And here's the danger that even we as Christians can face. Is we look no different to the world. When it comes to glory-seeking, we just look no different. And, and it, it can almost seem like has the weightiness the significance of the God who made the universe. Has that changed our lives? Is the centre of your solar system, your gravity, is it placed in God? 
and everything else revolves around him. Or if you asked your friends and those around you and they said, what is that person's, what is your centre of gravity? What would they say? What would they say is the thing that your life centres around? That would be an interesting conversation for me and my friends, wouldn't it? And I'm a preacher. As we reflect for this moment, we can see how unhealthy it is to make a name for ourselves. And now we get to see, instead of fame, I want to live forever, it's this name, Christ. This is how we live forever. In the book of Acts, the early church is meeting all sorts of opposition. And one of the areas of opposition that they meet is from governing authorities. It's from people who have power and people who seek for glory. People who want their name to be renowned up in lights written in stone. And in Acts chapter 4, as the apostles preach, they preach this, there is salvation found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. Look at where you and I might be tempted to snatch some short-term glory. Now gaze at the one whose name saves us. For there's no other name that surpasses his name. Jesus' name today is a derided name. It's a byword, it's a swear word, it's all sorts of words. But that is the name of the king of the universe. And there's no other name for you to live forever, but through his name, belief in who he is and what he's done for you. Because think about this. Anything else you think you could find your security in, your safety in, in life. Anything else you think you could glory in. Sometimes even good things. Think about this. None of those things died for your sin and rose for your hope. Not a single one. Kerry Packer was the richest man in Australia when he died. How much money did Kerry Packer have when he died? You don't know? None. He died. It's gone. Don't glory or find your security in things that do not last. Look at Babel and now look at Christ. Christ is better than Babel. Set your heart's affections on what won't let you down. Jesus will never let you down. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, that first question, it's simple enough for a child to learn it, profound enough for a senior person on their deathbed to remember it as they step into eternity. What is the chief purpose of your life? Why do you exist? Is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're not just going to heaven. It's not just building a life that we get to try and get to heaven. It's not just getting heaven. It's getting God. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We get it all wrong, of course. We glory in things that are not worth glorying. Thing. In fact, we glory in things that end up taking our joy. But if you glorify God in Christ, you will enjoy a joy, a rejoicing, an enjoyment that can't be taken away. Because death has never taken it away and never can. 
This is what we need now today, friends. We need to turn to Jesus and trust him as our king, as the one we glorify in and enjoy. And in a world of Babel building, we get to build our lives now on Jesus because Jesus changes everything now. Now that statement is an easy thing to say, isn't it? Jesus changes everything. How does Jesus change everything about Babel? How? In a phrase? This is how. The Lord came down. The Lord came down. That's Christmas, isn't it? When we read the Bible, and when you read the Bible and you see biblical theology unfold, you see God's salvation story, the story of us and the God who saves us. When you read it that way and you notice what this happens throughout every generation is God is always doing unexpected things. God is the God who turns the world's thinking upside down. God is the God who does the unexpected things every time. He works his good purposes in the world through things the world says, well, that's foolish. And God says, well, I'm going to pick the foolish things and use that. The world says, look at those impressive people. You must want to pick them to be your missionaries. You must want to pick those really well-to-do, well-together people to be your church. And God says, no, nope, I'm going to pick those unimpressive people. God works through weakness. God uses weak people. And this is seen in the very next episode in Genesis 12. So this is next week's episode. and Come along next week for Genesis 12. But here's a snapshot. Just after people had built a tower to reach the heavens, just after people had built this seemingly human impressive thing to reach to God, God turns expectations upside down. And how does he do that? He picks an elderly couple who can't have children and he says, you're going to have a baby and that's how I'm going to save the world. But we built a tower. We did this big tower and had this city and it's impressive. And we... no, 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 I'm going to pick this nobody couple who are nearly dead and you're going to have a baby and through your baby, the whole world's going to be blessed. His name is Abram. His wife is Sarai. God changes their names. Just a modification later. Do you notice? But a baby? Surely towers are more impressive than a helpless little baby. Isn't that how God works? Through helpless little babies? Abraham is the opposite to Babel. For instead of trying to make a name for himself, he's given a name by God. Abraham becomes a symbol of someone who is justified by faith rather than justifying himself. Abraham is a person who glorifies God by trusting God. And then, 2,000 years later, what happens next? The Lord came down at Christmas. Not to disperse us in our pride, but to save us from our pride. Not to scatter us in our speech, but to be slain for our sin, to gather us. The Lord came down. In a world of Babels, it's just a humble baby. For we, look how he's born to the world. Just like Abraham was a nobody that God picked for him saving the world, every page points to Jesus. 
including where we see a young woman from a tiny town from Nowheresville, God picks and says, through you, I'm going to save the world. We don't need a tower to take us to heaven. The Lord came down to take us there. And so Mary sings. That was her song, her psalm we read in our first Bible reading. Mary sings, she says this, My soul magnifies the Lord. Get this, she glorifies God. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in my Saviour. Mary rejoices, she enjoys God, her Saviour. He has shown the strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. Just like the Lord dispersed the Babel builders, the Lord scatters any proud thought. Mary would be tempted to have proud thoughts, wouldn't she? Well, I'm carrying the savour of the world. But no, she recognises God is to be glorified and to be enjoyed. This is about him, it's not about me. And she says, as he spoke to our fathers and Abraham to his offspring forever. Remember that promise, the offspring in Genesis 3.15? The promise that a little helpless baby born into the world, through that way, God is going to save the world. This is the message of Christmas. The incarnation of God with us. Glory has a name. He is a person. He is the man, Jesus. He is the saviour. And this is how humanity gets wrapped up in God's glorious grace at Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen what? We have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Friends, here's where we finish. Here's what we need to hold on to. In human history, God came down into a world of mess and he wrote your story of sin and your need of salvation. He wrote it on a cross and said, God was here. Jesus Christ is the glorious God-man, our saviour from sin and death. You will never find security in anything else. You will not find security from the coming judgment in anything else. Therefore, why glory in anything else? Who else is worthy of your worship, your love, your affections? And so we seek Jesus. We long for Jesus. We live for Jesus. This is how we, as his church, go down in history. We trust in Jesus' name today and so live forever. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for your grace in coming to us. Thank you, Lord, that you came down. And we pray that we would live for you and for your glory, knowing that that would truly be our joy. Father, forgive us for glorying in things that do not satisfy. Forgive us where we sought safety and security to make us feel safe in things that are really poor attempts at God replacements and help us move our affections of our hearts to, wor to worship Christ who is worthy of our worship, who is full of glory for our joy. We pray this for ourselves, we pray this for our neighbours, our families, our friends, 
And we pray that many more people, from hearing your word and doing the work of your word, as your word goes out, we ask that your spirit would see people turn to trust in Jesus too, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Starting now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.